say something that might actually cause confusion rather than clarity, uh, that might raise doubts rather than uh, removing doubts. And I think I did that uh, last week in the class that we're having with our young people on Sunday mornings. Uh, and so I want to try to address that question and sort of clarify some things that were said and maybe put, put minds at ease. It has to do with our New Testaments and the books that are in the, our New Testament and whether or not the books that are there ought to be there or whether maybe some books were left out of our New Testament that should be there, sort of some questions about whether we can trust that we have, when we pick up our New Testaments to read them, do we have what God wanted us to have? And so for a few minutes tonight, we want to review some material that we've studied before about how we got the New Testament. And I hope especially that our young people will pay attention to this because I really do think that we can have tremendous confidence in our Bibles. You know, there's not any book in history that is as certified and verified as our Bibles. And when we pick up our Bibles, we ought to have great confidence that we're reading exactly what God wanted us to know. And so for a few minutes tonight, we want to talk about how this book that we call the New Testament, how did this come to us? How was it handed down? And can we be sure and confident that it is the faithful Word of God? Before we get into that, we'll stop for just a minute to thank you all for being present. As Lee already said, we, we're grateful for the presence of each one, especially those who are visiting with us tonight. We're glad that you came. We hope you'll come back every time you have a chance to be here. And if you have questions, we encourage you to ask them. We're just simply here at College View trying very hard to be a church like the church that you read about in the pages of your New Testament. We're trying to do Bible things in Bible ways. We're seeking Bible authority for all that we do say and teach. And so if you were to say... Why are you doing that, and why are you doing it that way? We hope we could give you a Bible answer, a book, chapter, and verse response, a thus saith the Lord answer to those kind of questions. So feel free to ask them. Thanks for being here tonight. Let's talk about how we got the New Testament. You know, when we, whenever we're studying a Bible book, typically what we'll do when we start out, maybe we're going to be studying the book of Philemon, for instance, in, in a class. Typically, one of the very first things we'll do is we'll talk about the author, and we'll talk about the date, and we'll talk about the circumstances in which that book was written. For instance, Philemon, written by Paul. It was written while he was a prisoner in Rome. It was written about 62 A.D. And so we, we have some good information, some background-type uh, stuff that we like to talk about. But did you ever wonder, how did these separate writings, like Philemon, or the book of Philippians, or First Timothy, uh, or First Peter, or Third John... How did these separate writings, and they all initially were separate writings, how did they all get compiled into one book that we call the New Testament? That's, that's what we want to investigate in our study tonight. We know, of course, that the New Testament was not written by just one man. In fact, there were at least eight different men whose writings are compiled in our New Testaments, all right? And furthermore, we know that it was not all written at one point in time. Now, it depends a little bit, uh, especially on how you date the book of Revelation. But regardless of how you date the book of Revelation, we know that the New Testament was written over a span of time. It's somewhere between 20 and 50 years. It was a period of between 20 and 50 years when all of the New Testament books were written. And the fact of the matter is we know that we do not even have all of the writings of men who were known to be inspired. In other words, not everything that the Apostle Paul wrote 
was preserved as an inspired document for us today. For instance, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. Paul said, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to keep company with fornicators. Now, wait a minute. This is the book we call 1 Corinthians. And Paul mentions a, an epistle that he had written to them previous to that one. We don't have that one. We don't have a previous letter to the church of Corinth. We have this one, and we call it 1 Corinthians, but Paul makes it clear that he'd written to them previously about some things, you know. And so uh, there, were, there were some writings of those men that have not been preserved for us. And so that raises several questions. The questions are like these. How did the books that are in the New Testament get there? And uh, who decided that they should be included in our New Testament? And why were other books excluded? In other words, we've got 27 books in our New Testament. Now, who said that those were the right 27 to be there? And any others were left out. Why, why don't we have 38 or 56 books in our New Testament? How come these 27 are here? Why were they included in what we call our New Testament? And other books were left out. And, of course, there is the question, do we have all the books that we ought to have? In other words, are, are, have we got the full set of information that God wanted delivered to us? Basically, all these questions are in a category of things called the canon of the Scriptures. Now, this is not a canon like you shoot a cannon. You might notice that it's not even spelled the same way. The word canon here uh, literally means a standard or a system of rules. What were the standards? What were the systems of rules that were applied? The canon of Scriptures. Uh, there were some rules that were applied. Writings had to adhere to certain standards or rules uh, to be viewed as legitimate and authoritative. But the question is, who, who set those rules and, and are our New Testaments complete and accurate? That's what we want to know for sure. Well, let's start out this way in answering some of those questions. First of all, we know that the writers of the New Testament wrote by the inspiration of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, Paul said, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. Where did Paul get this? Where, when, he, when he was writing, where did he get what he was writing? He said, I received of the Lord, and I delivered it to you. That's the way this worked. Paul and men like him who were inspired got information from God, and they wrote it down so that we could have it for our understanding. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. We've explained this expression before, but I think it's so good to keep it in mind. When it talks about Scripture being given by the inspiration of God, literally, the, you could translate that to say, everything that is written was breathed by God. Now get that, everything written, that's the Scripture, all Scripture, everything written was breathed by God. Breathed by God. What's that mean? Well, when we speak, when we speak words, when we converse with people, did you know that in order to speak, you have to exhale air out of your lungs? And so when we speak, we are breathing out 
and the air comes out and it comes past our, our larynx uh, and across our, uh, the roof of our mouth and our tongue and our teeth and our lips and we form that air as it comes out and that's how we speak. But you have to exhale in order to speak words. Now, that, this is saying that that's how the Scriptures came, came to us. God breathed them. He spoke them. And the Scripture is claiming then that the words that are in our Bible are the very words that God spoke to mankind. Now, we know He used these inspired writers to record that message. But these are words from God. And if we study thoroughly the idea of Bible inspiration, we will understand that the Scriptures, is, the scriptures claim that every word is, that is there is there because God wanted it to be there. Now, obviously, our Bibles weren't written in the English language. Specifically, our New Testaments were written in Greek. And so we're saying that in that original Greek language, from which we have several reliable translations into English, the, in the original languages, the very words were there because God wanted them to be there. We need to have that kind of confidence in the Scriptures. They are literal verbally inspired words from God. Now, when those inspired writers wrote, the product of their work was immediately acknowledged and accepted by those in the early church. Now, uh, this is a really important point that we want to stress. Here's the Apostle Paul, and he writes a message. Or Peter, and he writes a message. Or John, and he writes a message. When those inspired writers of the first century wrote their words down, members of the church in that immediate time frame acknowledged immediately that what they wrote was the inspired word of God. Notice in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, just as soon as the church began, that the disciples continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Notice, they knew what the apostles' doctrine was. They knew immediately that this was what the apostles were teaching as the doctrine of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the text that Stephen read for us earlier, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, For this cause also we thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Notice, those people in Thessalonica, when they received the message from Paul, notice, they received it not as the word of men. This is not just something from Paul. They received it as the word of God. They knew immediately that these inspired messages were from God. They weren't just Paul's think-sos or opinions. They were the very word of God. Now, we really want to stress this because uh, there are some who think that it took a process of time before people began to acknowledge various writings as being inspired. You know, that maybe after a hundred years or two hundred years, uh, this document that we just quoted from, First Thessalonians, people say, well, you know, it's been around for a long time and it's pretty good stuff, and so yeah, we'll claim, we'll claim that that one is from God. No, that's not how it happened. That, that opinion of First Thessalonians, for instance, did not evolve over time. It was immediately acknowledged by those who received the message as having been from God. In fact, those writings were Scripture before the ink dried on the page. I, I like that expression, and I believe we should really believe that. When Paul was writing, it didn't take a hundred years before people said, well, that's pretty good writing. I think we'll save it. 
before the ink dried on the page when Paul was writing, that was the Scripture. That was the inspired Word of God. The word Scripture is found 50 times in the New Testament, and it always refers to the written Word of God. Sometimes it's referring to Old Testament, the Old Testament written Word of God, and sometimes it refers to the New Testament uh, Word of God. But the word Scripture, found 50 times in the New Testament, always refers to the written Word of God. And we know that they began to circulate those writings almost immediately. Some argue that there was a gradual evolution of thought, as we have just been suggesting, concerning the Scriptures. And that only after several centuries did they come to be regarded as an authoritative source. And that's just not so. Notice this: that they took these writings, they began to pass them around. They began to popularize them. Here's the Word of God. Here's the Holy Scripture. Colossians chapter 4, verse 16. Paul says, When this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that ye likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. By the way, some people wonder, what, what was that epistle from Laodicea? We don't have a book in our New Testament called Laodiceans. What was it? Well, a lot of, a lot of people think that that probably was the epistle that we call Ephesians. Uh, it's possible. It's likely. But I'm just using this verse here to stress that they were passing these things around. Now, they didn't have printing presses back then. They didn't have copy machines. And any copy that they made had to be a handwritten copy. But these writings were so precious to them and so valuable, and they regarded them so highly that they made copies and they passed them around. Here's evidence of the fact that these were being circulated. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 27, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. So these epistles written by men like Paul and Peter and John and James, Mark and Luke, these things that were being written uh, were ultimately compiled into one book. And there's some hint that this compilation may have begun very early on, perhaps as early as 115 A.D., just very shortly after the death of the last inspired apostle. There's indication that some effort to compile these special writings was already underway. As we said, they were separate writings initially, but very soon, because men regarded these as special things, very soon they began to make compilations of them leading to what we have today, the 27 books of the New Testament. But again, I want to stress to you that these, re these writings were regarded as Scripture immediately. Now, let me, let me prove that to you again. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, 1 Timothy 5, 18, Paul said, now, if we, got a, if we got an accurate date on 1 Timothy, probably about 65 A.D. 1 Timothy written about 65 A.D., okay? Notice what Paul said. He says, The Scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. All right. Paul said, the Scripture says this. All right, remember what, we, what does Scripture mean? It's always an expression used to describe the written Word of God. So, Paul says, the written Word of God, Scripture says, what does it say? It says, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. Where's that? Where does it say that? It says that in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. All right? So, Paul's quoting Scripture here. He's, he's quoting the written Word of God. And he says, the Scripture says, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn. It says that. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. That's the Old Testament, right? But he says, And 
The Scripture says the laborer is worthy of his reward. Where does it say that? Well, it doesn't say that in the Old Testament. You can't find that expression in the Old Testament. You know where that's found? That's found in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. Here's Paul. He's quoting Luke. And he says it's Scripture. Luke's Scripture. The New Testament Scripture says the laborer is worthy of his reward. You see that? Immediately, these guys began to regard these writings as the inspired Word of God. By the way, there's that, that quote from Luke 10, verse 7. In the same house remain eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. Going out from house to house. There's that quote. Again, what we're stressing here is that there was no evolution of thought, you know, maybe a hundred years, two hundred years, three or four hundred years later, they began to regard these writings as Scripture. That's just not true, is it? Even internal evidence of the Bible proves that that is a faulty argument. Here's, here's a quote from Second Peter. In Second Peter chapter 3. Now, if we've got an accurate date on the writing of Second Peter, we believe Second Peter was probably written in 66 A.D. So in 66 A.D., what does Peter say? Peter says, in 66 A.D., he said, "...account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given to him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other Scriptures, unto their own destruction." Now look at that. He's talking about things that Paul has written, right? He says, some of the things that Paul wrote are hard to understand. I think, I think he was talking about the book of Romans there, don't you, Arthur? He was talking about, probably talking about the book of Romans there. Some of the stuff Paul wrote is hard to understand. Maybe Romans, Romans is kind of hard to But he, notice he says, people will rest the script. They, they, they take the things that Paul wrote and they will rest the things as they do also, notice, the other scriptures. Well, what's that mean? He, he's, he's meaning that the things Paul wrote are Scripture. And they do with Paul's writing just like they do with other Scriptures. They try to twist them to teach false doctrines. But here, Peter acknowledges in 66 A.D. that the things that Paul wrote were Scripture. No long evolution of thought leading to that conclusion. Again, it was immediately understood. Within the first 50 years after the Apostles, there were several writers who made frequent appeal to the authority of the New Testament of Scripture. I'll just name a few of them. You recognize some of these names most likely. Clement of Rome, whose who writings date to 95 A.D. And again, right around the, uh, the death of the last inspired apostle, here's a man, not an inspired writer. This is a non-inspired writer, but he makes reference. He, in other words, what do we do? When we're teaching or preaching or trying to prove a point, what do we do? We quote Scripture, right? We don't just stand up here and give our opinions. We say, here's what we believe and here's why. Here's a Scripture that proves what we believe to be true. Well, that's what they did back then, too. And men like Clement of Rome, who lived very early on, probably knew one or more of the apostles personally. What did he do when he was teaching, preaching, and writing? He quoted Matthew, Mark, Hebrews, Romans, 1 Timothy, Titus, 1 Peter, and Ephesians. He quoted Scripture. That's what we do. But that proves that as early as 95 A.D., these Christians understood that the, the books in our New Testament were the inspired Word of God. It didn't take a long time for that idea to develop. 
They immediately understood it to be so. Justin Martyr, who lived from 100 to 165 A.D., repeatedly cited the four Gospels, mentions Acts and Revelation. Ignatius, A.D. 115. Polycarp, A.D. 130, referred to various New Testament books. And there were other writers who came a little later. Men like Arrhenius mentions Paul's epistles over 200 times. Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian uh, is another. Really, we would say that questions about the canon of Scripture, in other words, which books belong in there and which ones don't, which ones are authoritative, which ones are not, those questions about the canon of Scripture were settled long before a church council met to discuss those matters in 397 A.D. And there were count, and that was one of the first, and there were some others like them. Men called special meetings to discuss which books should belong in our New Testament. They, they really didn't decide. Those, those council meetings did not decide the question. The questions were already decided. They were basically just putting their stamp of approval upon what was already known to be true. Faithful disciples understood those things to be from God and had known it for a long time. Basically, those councils only confirmed what was already known and true about the inspired writings. All right. Now, if we were going to, if we were going to look at every specific book in our New Testament, we would say a strong case can be made for each one of them. A strong case can be made for every one of those books that they deserve their place in the New Testament, that they meet the requirements, that they are legitimate and authoritative. Strong case can be made for every one of them. And you really can't make that same case for any other. There's other writings out there, of course, right? But you can't make that strong case for the other writings that you can make for every one of the books, the 27 books that are in our New Testaments. And... and Men devote their whole lives to studying those kind of things. And textual criticism is a field of study that some people are very devoted to. And so we have, we have the scholarship of the ages, centuries worth of work that men have invested into proving that our New Testaments are the legitimate, inspired Word of God. All right. Now, there's another question that follows that up, and I want to talk about this real quickly. Okay, so what Paul wrote originally was the inspired Word of God. But man, that was a long time ago, right? That was almost 2,000 years ago. How can we be sure that in the period of time over 2,000 years, there's a lot of things that had to happen to get it to us today, right? And As we said earlier, for a long, long time, there were no printing presses. There certainly weren't any copy machines. If you wanted to get a copy of the New Testament, it had to be a handwritten copy. How can we be sure that these New Testament documents that we have today are the same as the original? Well, uh, some people think not. Some people are critical of this process. For instance, here's a quote that I got off an atheist website uh, back in 2004. This atheist website said the New Testament has been translated so many times and modified by copiers in so many ways over the past 2,000 years that it is impossible to have any confidence in its accuracy. Now, this guy threw out this criticism, you know. This, this is just one of those, you know, I want to throw some mud against the wall and see if it'll stick. I'm just going to say... There have been so many copies of the New Testament, so many translations of the New Testament. It's been over a long period. You, you can't trust it. You couldn't, there's no way it could be accurate. 
Now, that's the accusation he's made, but of course, it is a false accusation. Let me show you a, a little example of how we got our Bibles. Now, this is, this is way oversimplification. But let's say that this was, let's say that this was the original message that came down, the word cat. Now, the, the skeptics and the doubters of the Bible would argue that what happened was over a period of time, little changes got in there. And so we went from C-A-T to C-A-T-O. Oh, a letter was added. And then the next time that was copied, a letter was changed, and then another letter was changed, and, and one was dropped. And at the end, the message reads dog instead of cat. It's totally different. You know I mean, look, look, and they say, this is what happened with your Bibles. They started out with one message, but it got changed so many times that now when you read your Bible, it's not even anything close to what the original was. And, 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 and they would argue that this is the way the, this is what happened to the Bible. We end up with a totally different, confused and, and messed up message. Now, what we need to understand is that's not how the Bible got here. That's not how we got our New Testament. That's not how it happened. All right? If you wanted to draw a simplified picture of how we got our New Testament, it would be more like this. Okay, here's our original message, cat. Now, what did they do? In other words, Paul wrote. Paul wrote the original, you know, he, he wrote more books of the New Testament than anybody else. And so when Paul wrote something, he wrote, what did they do with that? Well, they started making copies of it. We already said they started making handwritten copies and distributing it, right? And so... They took that original message and they made copies of it, okay? And they faithfully—they were very careful. They, very, they really respected these writings. And they were very careful to do it accurately. In fact, when the, when the scribes would write copies of these documents, they would actually count the words in the original and count the words in the finished product and make sure they hadn't left anything out, all right? So they, they, they wrote some copies. And then from those copies, more copies were made. But, oh, wait just a minute. I don't know if you can see this from where you are. I don't have a laser up here. One of these down here has a, has a, a wrong message in it. Do you see it down there? Cat. Cat, cat, cat. Cat, 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 cat. One of them is messed up, right? Do you have any problem detecting the error there? Any problem? No, because we've got so many others to compare to. We know that this one down here is an erroneous copy because we have so many other copies that are consistent. The message is cat. That was the original message. And when we get out here and we find one that's flawed, it's quickly identified because there are so many faithful copies to compare it to. You see that? And so our New Testaments didn't come to us like that. Our New Testaments came to us like that. You see what we're saying? And so we, we don't have, and what do we got there? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. We got nine copies. With just nine copies to compare to, we can quickly pick out an error with just nine others to compare to, right? Well, the fact of the matter is, our New Testaments, in, 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 in the case of our New Testaments, we've got over 5,000 copies to compare to. There are five, over 5,000 uh, copies of, of and, and various fragments, com, some complete New Testaments dating to 340 A.D., fragments that date back to 120 A.D., lots of manuscripts, copies to compare to, we can have great confidence that it was handed down to us accurately. Uh, well, there's, there's a lot more we can say about that, but we're just we're, we're running short on time. Uh, 
let me let me press on. I, that, that's an interesting that's an interesting process, and there's some really good uh, evidence there. But we'll we'll save that for another time. There's one other thing that we need to add into this mix. How can we know that we have what God wanted us to have in our New Testaments? Well. God's providence was guiding the process of preserving His Word. He promised that He would. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the Word of our God shall stand forever. Matthew 24, verse 35, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but My words shall not pass away. 1 Peter 1, verse 25, The Word of the Lord endureth forever, and this is the Word which by the Gospel is preached unto you. God was guiding the process, and by His providence, He was making sure that His Word was preserved and accurately handed down through the ages. We know that there were several failed attempts throughout history to obliterate God's Word. For example, the Roman Emperor Diocletian decreed in 305 A.D. that all Christian literature should be destroyed throughout the world. He wasn't successful, right? Now, think about that. You can think about a powerful man like a Roman emperor. If he wants to rid the world of the Bible, he ought to be able to do it, but he couldn't do it. He couldn't get it done. Why couldn't he get it done? Because God was preserving His Word as He said that He would. Uh, God's providence was at work. And so when we pick up our Bibles, one of the reasons we should have great confidence in it is because God promised that He'd keep it preserved for us, and He did. When we read our New Testaments, we can be sure that we have the literal, infallible Word of God. It was written by inspired men, it was handed down by faithful Christians. It was preserved by the mighty God and His providence. We can trust our Bibles. And so, I thought that was worth some information that was worth repeating. Uh, one of the reasons why is because I think maybe I said something a week or so ago that might have left some doubt in some young people's minds, and I want to erase that. We can have great confidence in our Bibles. Every book that's there is there because it belongs there, that God wants it there. And we can trust our scriptures uh, uh, emphatically. All right, thank you for listening. I hope that's been helpful information. As we bring a lesson to a close, we'll do as we always do, and that is sing a song of invitation with the intention of encouraging everyone present to consider your relationship with God and make sure it's right. If you're not a Christian yet, we hope you'll obey that simple gospel plan of salvation. If you're a Christian and, and you've fallen away and you need to be restored to the Lord, we, we'd be anxious to help and assist you in doing that. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing this song.